Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Um, if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing our series through the book of Revelation and uh, looking at Revelation 2 and 3 where we see uh, seven letters that Jesus uh, dictated to uh, seven actual congregations in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. And um, we're looking this morning at the second of those, the letter to the church in Smyrna. Um, and uh, this is one of those passages that is, um, you're gonna, you just need to buckle in <laughs> before we look at this. This, this is a passage that uh, brings existential fear into my life, and yet I think also um, is, is deeply comforting to us. Really, um, what we're going to do this morning is talk about the reality of suffering in our world and how uh, experiencing the beauty of God transforms that suffering. Just like we just sang, when I taste your goodness, God, I will not want. So if you would stand with me, and we're going to give our attention to God's word. Reading uh, Revelation 2, starting at verse 8. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you um, be near to us? As we uh, just, I tremble even to read these words, let alone to explain them. God, we know that uh, our world is hurting and broken, and uh, there are those who are suffering greatly, and all of us here is affected by that in one way or another. And so, God, I pray that as we um, think about your uh, word this morning, that you would give us uh, an ear to hear what you're saying to your church. That you would help us not to um, run from the suffering that we do experience and that you would give us compassion for those who suffer much more deeply in our world than we uh, tend to experience. Would you help us to see good news in your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. A while ago, I heard a story, a friend told me the story of his, uh, his pastor um, in Texas, was a big man, he's six foot three, and uh, he was a pastor in Texas, but he had family in Virginia Beach, and so their family would usually go back for vacation to Virginia Beach every summer. And his daughter, who was you know, a little girl, four or five years old at the time, her favorite thing to do was to walk along the beach and discover uh, sand dollars on the shore. And he said that every time she discovered a sand dollar, it was like she discovered it for the first time, and she would laugh and smile and jump, and, and uh, he was just filled with, with uh, such joy and seeing the delight in his, 
in his daughter's face when she would discover a sand dollar. And so they would go out to the beach and they would walk along and he would hold his daughter's hand and being a big man, he could see much further than she did. And he could see the sand dollar when it was 20, 30, 40 feet away. And so rather than spoiling the surprise and saying, look, there, there it is, and running to it, he would kind of just take her by the hand and slowly and gently guide her to the next sand dollar so that she could have the joy of discovering it all, all on her own. I love that story. I think it's a beautiful picture um, of the way that God leads his people, uh, his church, and the way that he leads each of us individually. Uh, we have a God who is bigger than we are, um, who, who, who can see further than we can see. Uh, he can see um, more than we can see from our limited perspective, and yet he is near to us. He is close to us. He is intimately involved and interested in the details of our lives. He's with us in our joys, um, just like that father with his daughter, and he is also with us in our sorrows. Theologians and scholars and pastors, when we talk about those two realities, that God is, he is great and he is also close, use fancy words to, to talk about those two realities, that God is, he is transcendent and that he is imminent. And to say that God is transcendent means that he transcends, he's above our circumstances. He, he, he is unaffected by the, um, you know, the mire of, of life in our world. Um, he trees above it all. He transcends it. He is transcendent. He is not limited um, or frustrated as we are by our, our physicality, by our physical you know, nature. So God is transcendent, and yet at the same time, God is also imminent. He is close. He is intimately involved in our lives, and we can see that primarily uh, in the way that God makes himself known to us in his Son um, in the second person of the Trinity in Jesus. And we need a God who is both transcendent, who is above it all, and intimate, who is who's with us, who sees us, who knows us, who experiences what we experience in order to faithfully navigate life in a broken world. I mean, we can imagine a God who is only transcendent and he is powerful and he is all-knowing and he is all-seeing, but he is aloof, he is removed, he is distant. Or we can imagine, and I think in the world that we live, we often talk about a God who is, oh, he, he is with those who suffer, and he is, he is present, um, but he is powerless. We can imagine a God who is only transcendent, or a God who is only imminent, but in the Bible we see a God who is both present, uh, above our suffering, or he is both above our suffering and actually experiences it with us. And in doing so, he, he actually transforms our experience of suffering. This year we're focusing on our core value of beauty, and, and what I really want to talk about this morning is that you have, it's these moments where we glimpse the beauty or the glory of God, where we, where we kind of capture a sense of his transcendence, of his greatness, when we are stunned by how amazing and how incredible he is. Um, and it's, it's those moments that we need to experience in order to faithfully live in a world that is broken, where we experience suffering. On uh, Friday, I was with a gathering of, uh, of, of pastors. I was invited to this meeting, and, and, and one of the guys there was talking about um, recently going, uh, he hiked Mount Whitney. And um, 
he was uh, there with a few friends, one of whom was a uh, kind of a staunch agnostic, and, um, and uh, they got up early. I, I googled this to look it up. Apparently, it takes about 18 hours to hike Mount Whitney. And so if you hike Mount Whitney, you're up before the sun rises, and they began to set off in the high Sierras. And um, as the sun began to rise, he said he turned and saw his his agnostic friend with a, you know, a, just tears filling his eyes and beginning to like roll down and freeze on his cheeks. And, uh, and he was stunned to see his agnostic friend, you know, just stunned. And, and, and his friend um, turned to him and said, it's like God is bringing up the lights on the cathedral of his glory. And both men were just so amazed by this, this vision, this the grandeur of God. And, and the funny thing is, that man said, when I checked out of the hotel the next morning, just on a whim, I had this thought, and he said, I reached into my pocket and grabbed a wad of cash and just left it on the nightstand as a tip for the, uh, the, you know, the, the housekeeper who cleans the hotel room. He said, I left more as a tip for that woman than I paid for the hotel. And this is what he said, experiencing the glory of God transformed me into a generous person. The, a glimpse of the beauty of God transforms us in all sorts of ways. And it can also transform our suffering. Suffering is a reality in this broken world that we live in. We all, we all know that. And in our culture, we often ask the question of why. Like, why? Why does God allow suffering in our world? And as best I can tell, the Bible never really attempts to answer the question of why suffering exists. It only calls us to endure when we suffer and to stand against it. And the only way that I think we can do that is if we know that we have a God who is simultaneously above it all and yet present with us. In um, the middle of the civil rights movement in, uh, in 1955, 1956, uh, we all know the story of Rosa Parks who... Um, was arrested for refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a, uh, on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. What we, what we don't tend to know as much about is uh, what happened after that. The Monday after Rosa Parks was arrested, um, the Montgomery bus boycott began that lasted for over a year as uh, African-American uh, citizens in Montgomery uh, protesting racial segregation, uh, boycotted the public bus system. And uh, in the middle of that, an, an older woman named Mother Pollard, she's called Mother Pollard, apparently nobody really knows what her first name is, but she was, a, she was an older African-American woman who was known as a leader in, the, uh, in, the, in her church in Montgomery, Alabama. And um, after many weeks, Martin Luther King apparently noticed that uh, this old woman, for weeks and weeks, walking to her destination, uh, refusing to take the bus, and Martin Luther King, just kind of moved by compassion for the 72-year-old woman, said that she might just go ahead and take the bus for the sake of her health. And she said to him, Martin, my feet is tired, but my soul is rested. She saw something bigger something bigger to live for. And the experience of transcendence enabled her not just to endure, but actually transformed her present suffering. And it gave encouragement to others. Martin Luther King, later in a speech, 
said this. He said, I've been tortured. Uh, I've been tortured without and tormented within by the raging fires of tribulation. He said, I've been forced to muster what strength and courage I have to withstand howling winds of pain and jostling storms of adversity. That guy knew how to talk to me. He said, but as the years have unfolded, the eloquently simple words of Mother Pollard have come back again and again to give light and peace and guidance to my troubled soul. And he quotes her, God's going to take care of you. Jesus loves his church, and that's why he speaks to his church. And in Revelation 2 and 3, he speaks seven letters to seven churches, and in doing so, he is speaking to the completeness of his church, all of his people. And uh, he speaks to, Revel- uh, to Smyrna, church in Smyrna, here. And Smyrna is one of only two of these churches for whom Jesus has nothing negative to say. He is only encouragement, but no correction. What I think we can take from that is is that um, to his people who are enduring faithfully and suffering in a broken world, Jesus only has encouragement. He has no correction. Because uh, what what he's telling us is this, God is going to take care of you. Because you have a God who's both with you and yet who is above it all. And that transforms our experience of suffering, enables us to live in this world. So look with me at this passage. The first thing I want you to see is the imminence of God, the the nearness of God in this passage. In verse 9, Jesus comes to the church, uh, says to the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation. And that word tribulation is... um, you know, causes lots of confusion, and I think that maybe this is faded, but there's a time when Christians got really excited about the tribulation, and what does that mean, and when is it going to happen, and it was like this scary time where there's going to be this period of time at the right before the end of the world where all kinds of awful things are going to happen, and I do not believe that's what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the tribulation. Uh, the book of Revelation uses the word tribulation five times, two of those are in this passage, but it doesn't refer to the end of the world. Rather, the word tribulation just means pressure. Uh, tribulation is just one of the words that Jesus uses in this passage to describe suffering. Um, he talks about slander, and we understand what slander is. Slander is when somebody says something untrue about you to uh, damage your character or to cause you injury. Uh, he talks about poverty. Uh, and, and commentators think that what he's describing is that, that Christians in Smyrna uh, had possibly lost their jobs or their income because of their faith. In verse 10, he says, do not be afraid about what you are to suffer. And so there he uses that, that word, just kind of the generic word for suffering, um, which is going through something difficult or painful. And then he uses this word tribulation twice in the passage, which just means pressure. Um, it's the feeling of like immense weight that feels like it's bearing down on us when we go through a particularly difficult or distressing time. The more I studied uh, this week and just kind of trying to get my head around tribulation, pressure, the more, to be honest, it just felt like that is the word to describe what I feel like I was going through for many months this fall when... Um, I'm hesitant to say this, but just candidly, when 
people who I loved, people who we knew, people who I had invested in and poured myself out for in many ways, uh, left our church. <laughs> just all I could feel is just the pressure, the weight. And almost every night from a couple of months, not, you know, sleeping through the night, um, hardly able to get anything done. Just that pressure, pressure, pressure. Tribulation. Tribulation, according to the Bible, is not a period of time right before the world ends. It's what Christians living in this time between the resurrection of Jesus and the time when the effects of his resurrection are fully realized when he returns. Those are the end times that we've been living in for 2,000 years and may go on for thousands more. These are the end times, and it's during those times that Christians experience tribulation, pressure. I once heard somebody, um, seems important to say this, talk about the difference between clean pain, what he called clean pain, and dirty pain. And uh, dirty pain is the pain you experience because you're stupid. <laughs> uh, clean pain is what, what, what Jesus is talking about here. Um, I experience, you know, I suffer when I'm cruel to my wife and she is angry with me. You know, that's dirty pain. <laughs> clean pain what Jesus is talking about here is suffering not because of anything that we have done wrong but because uh, of simply our allegiance with him and Jesus says to us and to the church in Smyrna he says I know your tribulation I know your suffering I know the pressure that you are under you know one of the things I've, I've come to realize is that often those who are suffering uh, tend to feel alone and misunderstood uh, we have this tendency when we suffer to feel like nobody really understands what we're going through. And uh, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? When you're struggling with sickness and disease, it can be hard to show up at church because you show up and it feels like everything's happy, everybody's happy, and your experience of life just feels hard. Uh, when you're going through the agony of broken relationships and divorce or betrayal or abuse, um, it's awful to go to work or to go to school where it seems like everybody else uh, just doesn't understand what you're going through. I, I mean, I think about people, friends whose health or, you know, uh, have, they have just dietary restrictions. And so while most of us get excited when we are, you know, invited to a party, uh, some of us show up and th all they think about is, I can't eat any of that. And everybody is here to celebrate, and yet none of it is for me. And so to walk into a room where we're supposed to be a celebration and just to feel forgotten and overlooked must be so painful. And Jesus says, I know you're suffering. He says, I get it. I, I see you. I know what you're going through. But the word that's used to, for not for when he says, I know, isn't just a, a like, kind of intellectual knowledge, like, I know that you are suffering. Uh, he, he's describing knowledge that comes through experience. Jesus is saying, I know because I am with you, and I know because I have suffered with you, and I have suffered for you. Nicholas Wolterstorff is a Christian philosopher, um, professor, I, I think he's taught at uh, Notre Dame and at Yale, and... Um, a very intelligent man, but probably is best known for a book he wrote many years ago called A Lament for a Son that he wrote after his son died, I think, in a 
in a climbing accident where he was just wrestling through, um, you know, whatever you might say about the problem of evil and how a good God could allow um, suffering in this world. It doesn't offer much comfort when your only son dies. And Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote this. He said, It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. I always thought this meant that no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. Or perhaps his sorrow is his splendor. Because instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it with us. In John, um, no, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus gathers with his followers for their last meal together. And as they eat um, and knowing what is coming ahead and looking for, looking, not looking forward anxiously, but looking ahead to the cross, Jesus says to his followers, I have longed to eat this meal with you before my suffering. And then he goes to the cross. Jesus knows his, our suffering because he, he experienced our suffering. And on the cross, he suffers more deeply than any of us will ever know because on the cross, he is taking upon himself our sin and our shame and our brokenness and he is paying the just penalty that we deserve and so he is experiencing the just displeasure of God on our behalf. He is suffering in our place and so the beauty and the irony of Christianity is that the most heinous crime that has ever been committed where the human race killed its creator is transformed into this beautiful, life-giving symbol, the cross. Um, It's in the ugliness of the cross that we are set free. The uh, most heinous crime the world has ever committed becomes the most powerful expression of God's love for this world. Jesus knows our suffering because he is with us, but because he He's with us. I mean, not just like, oh, I'm with you, man. <laughs> he suffers with us. He suffers for us. He suffers on our behalf. Jesus is with us, leading us by the hand, holding us, enabling us to endure, and transforming even our suffering into joy. He is eminent, imminent. The second thing we see in this passage is the transcendence of God over our suffering. So often our suffering feels hopeless and pointless. So often... You know, when we suffer, it feels like it is, there's no reason for this and it's going to go on forever and we can just uh, despair and give up hope. And Jesus says two things in this passage to give us hope in verse 10. Uh, he says, firstly, in verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. For 10 days. Throughout the book of Revelation, numbers, imagery is used in a symbolic way, and we we don't know exactly what Jesus means by 10 days, but I think what we can be clear about is this, that it's not going to last forever. Your suffering has a beginning, and it has an end point, and it will one day come to an end. It will not go on forever. The one who knows all and sees all and is above all says that it will one day come to an end. It won't last forever. Jesus says that when we suffer for his sake, we are being tested. 
And I think if you just read that casually, you can misunderstand it because I think what we tend to think of a, a, a test as like, are you going to pass this test? And there's another way we can use the word testing. Um, I had to write this down because I was going to forget it. But um, another way to think about the word test is not passing or failing, but to discern the quality of something. You know, like a proving ground. Um, you know, we watch this car show with our kids where they, they test cars not to see if they're going to pass or fail, but to just demonstrate the quality of them. Jesus is saying that when we suffer, the quality of our t- faith is revealed. David Brooks, a journalist, um, one of the few, it seems to me, sane voices speaking in our culture, said this at a, at a um, he gave a speech in 2014. He said, suffering teaches gratitude. When you're on top of the world, you think that people love you because you deserve it. But when you are suffering, you realize that love is unearned. Suffering uh, tests us. It reveals uh, what's, what's really there in our hearts. It reveals the quality of our faith. And Jesus says it won't go on forever. But the second thing Jesus says to give us hope, in verse 10, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then in verse 11, he says, To the one who conquers, or the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. <sighs> Jesus is saying that there is an unending death that those who belong to him will never experience. And so we can endure suffering in this world not because, uh, not only because it will one day come to an end, but also because it will one day be transformed and we will experience life. The pattern of life in a broken world is that uh, the crucifixion comes before the resurrection. Death always <coughs> precedes rebirth. But don't miss the point, like resurrection is the goal. There's an unending death that will never capture those who belong to Jesus. Jesus is saying that it is those who conquer who receive the crown of life. Um, at least in the, in the translation I'm reading for, it says those who conquer. I, I think that it, other translations translate that um, overcome. To those who overcome, I will give the crown of life. And I think the word overcome is a better word for us to use because... He doesn't mean conquer in the sense that you um, that you are victorious, um, kind of at the expense of someone else. Uh, conquering just means one of the themes that we're going to see in the Book of Revelation is that um, it's just like those who overcome are those who survive. Those who overcome are simply those who hold on to Jesus. Those who do not give up on Jesus. Jesus says it's those who overcome that receive the crown of life. And this is tremendously encouraging because what it tells us is that we receive life not because we have ultimately earned it, but because Jesus has earned it for us. In John um, 16, verse 33, um, we are told this. Jesus said, he's talking to his followers, and it says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Okay, I'm talking to you so that you may have peace. And then he says, in this world you will have tribulation. He uses the same word there. In this world you have tribulation, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You know, I wanted to say, but take heart. It won't really last that long. 
or take heart, I will show you how to avoid it. But it doesn't say that. Jesus says, take heart, I have overcome the world. But see, what he's saying in, in, Revelation, we're gonna, uh, in, in Revelation 2 and 3 is those who overcome, those who survive, those who do not give up on Jesus will receive the crown of life. In John 16 and in Revelation 4 and 5, Jesus says, I am the one who overcomes. And so it is in Jesus that we overcome. It is simply by holding on to him that we overcome. We need a God who is larger than our circumstances, who is triumphant even in suffering. The message of the Bible is that Jesus conquers sin and death on the cross and that all who are in him receive, uh, receive his victory. Not because we have earned it, but because he has earned it and we receive it by being found to be in him. We live in a, uh, a secular culture that says that meaning must be framed in this worldly terms that it's a cop-out to say that there is a God who transcends everything and gives meaning to this life, which I think is just another fancy way to say that our world believes that the meaning of life is found in comfort and happiness. And if that is true, then suffering is the worst thing that ever happens to you because it des destroys your meaning in life. But if you have a God... Uh, the transcendent God who is with us even in our suffering and yet triumphs over it and brings us peace through his victory, that means that even our suffering is transformed in the end. Even our suffering is changed into something. And it, and it would be cruel to say this in a callous way. It would be cruel to say this if God were not also with us and present in our suffering. But because God is transcendent over our suffering, he transforms even our suffering into a thing of beauty. There is, a, in Japan, a kind of artwork called uh, kintsugi. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's a form of art where uh, broken uh, pieces of pottery are taken and uh, mended back together in such a way that it, the, the cracks and the, the broken parts are highlighted. Uh, the repairs are visible where... Skilled artisans take a lacquer resin mixed with powdered gold or silver or platinum. And the repairs to these bowls are made in such a way that they are visible and yet somehow beautiful. The word kintsugi means golden joinery in Japanese. And there is a sense in which the cross of Jesus transforms our suffering, even our suffering, into a thing of beauty. Somehow God makes even um, the worst parts of our lives, the most painful parts of our lives, look beautiful in the end. And so that brings us to the third thing that I want you to see in this passage, and that is that we have a mission that transforms our suffering. I think this passage shows us why it is so hard to live faithfully as a follower, as a disciple of Jesus in the culture that we live in, because we live in a world that says you deserve to be happy, not just that you can be happy or that, you know, like being happy is great. So you deserve to be happy. But for those of us that have experienced that God is with us and have glimpsed his transcendent beauty that sustains us in our suffering, that there is a better way to live. Jesus says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty says, but you are rich. And, and, and what he's saying is, yes, you may, have, you may have suffered many things, you may have endured 
pain, uh, under pain. You may have been faithful um, in such a way that has cost you. And, and it's cost you in such a way that you, you feel like you don't have what you want, or we use the word need, but, you know, following Jesus may result in you not having what you, want, what you think you need or what you really want to live a happy life in this world. But what Jesus, what this is saying, what, what Revelation 2 is saying, is that experiencing Jesus transforms our suffering into something else, into joy. That... Um, the loss that we have suffered, the suffering that we have endured for the sake of Christ will actually feel like riches in the end. There are three things that this passage, I think, calls us to. And uh, the three things that this passage would, would, would kind of call us to by application are this. Uh, stand up, show up, and I'm tempted to say shut up. <laughs> But, yeah, it doesn't seem like the nicest way to put it. So let me just say, um, maybe sit down. Um, let me put it like this. Let me explain it like the first and the th- third thing together. Um, stand up and sit down. Um, wisdom is knowing when to stand up and when to sit down. Or let me just put it bluntly. Wisdom is knowing when to speak out and when to shut up. And um, we don't tend to be very good at that in our world. Um, when you are suffering, be quiet. When others are suffering, speak up. <laughs> and my kids are here, um, and so I'm kind of going to throw one of them under the bus, but hopefully he'll forgive me um, <laughs> with the help of many long years of counseling. It's not that bad. But um, this morning, uh, one of them showed me, I'm not going to tell you which one, um, he said, look at this picture. Um, on my phone, they don't have phones, but pretend they do. And he said, sure, look at this picture on my phone. And I looked at it, and it was a picture of him looking really tough, you know? <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's awesome. When we're, when we're kids, we, we take selfies of ourselves trying to look tough. But when we grow up, we tend to not put pictures of ourselves on our phones, right? On our lock screen, or do we? <laughs> because at best, it is a sign of our lack of maturity that we live in a selfie world where we are obsessed with pictures of ourselves. And there is a, um, well, let me just say it like that, at best a lack of maturity in whining about the way that we are treated in this world. I mean, there was a couple things this week that uh, are so frustrating to me. I'm trying to, email people in, in our community so that our church can have a booth at this spring festival that uh, the HOA is, put, I'm just going for it, the HOA is putting on before Easter and it'd be great to serve our community and nobody will respond to the pastor of a church in Ladera Ranch. And that's just pathetic. But you know what? Like I kind of am whining about it, but it's kind of pathetic, isn't it, to stand here and whine about it? Because I'm also reminded that this morning there are... I mean, I've told you several times in the last couple months about a church, a churches across China that are being persecuted and a church that doesn't know where their pastor is this morning. He was arrested in early December and nobody's heard from him since. And a week or two on Facebook... Um, a member of that church on Saturday night wrote on uh, you know, social media in China 
and said, I don't know if I get dressed for church in the morning if I should wear church clothes or jail clothes. I don't know what she chose, but she went to jail that morning. And so we need to shut up <laughs> about the minor inconveniences that we suffer, and we need to stand up because we have brothers and sisters around the world who are truly suffering. And I do not say that to shame you. I get it. The gospel casts out shame but it also gives us the courage to stand up for those who are truly suffering. When we defend ourselves in general, we look like whiners. When we defend others, that's what greatness really looks like. Wisdom is knowing when to stand up and when to shut up. Okay. But the last thing that I think that this causes us um, to do is to show up. You know, I, I feel like I have to tell you this, that there is a way to avoid suffering in this life, at least the suffering that Jesus is describing in this passage. And the way to avoid suffering is to just not get too close to Jesus. And, you know, we can do that in rebellious ways, but I think we can also do that in very religious-looking ways where we confess all of the right things, but we live in such a way that we kind of keep Jesus at arm's length. And so we don't suffer that the goal of life isn't comfort or happiness. If that's the goal, then suffering will wreck you. But God uses suffering to draw us to himself, so just don't run from it. Listen, please hear me. Like I'm not saying go looking for suffering. Don't. Jesus doesn't say that. He just says, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of it. Just show up. Um, when suffering enters your life, I have found through experience that suffering will drive us either deeper into the arms of Jesus or deeper into the arms of our sin. Typically, by running away from the pain. Don't run away from the pain. Run to Jesus instead. But the other thing that suffering um, does is that it allows, as God uh, matures us through what we suffer, he is going to give us increasing opportunities to enter into the pain and suffering of other people. God is going to give you the opportunity to enter into the suffering of others. So don't run away from it. Don't run away from it. No one who has lived an easy life has ever lived a great life. No one who has ever lived a comfortable life has ever lived a great life. Don't go suffering from it if you're close to Jesus. I mean, it'll find you eventually. Just don't be afraid of it. So i got to conclude with this, um, because uh, one of the refrains in Revelation 2 and 3 is that Jesus issues a warning to these churches. And uh, to many of the churches, he says, uh, he issues this warning and says, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand from you. He says, you will no longer be a church. You might be a social gathering, a club, or a club, or whatever, but the presence of God will no longer be in the midst of you. But he doesn't say that to the church in Smyrna. And it occurred to me last night that Jesus, like there's no threat to this church that's suffering. Jesus never says that, that he's going to remove his lampstand from the church in Smyrna. And so just on a whim, I, I looked up, I googled churches in Smyrna last night. And, um, well, uh, Smyrna is now known by the name Ismer. It's the third largest city in Turkey. And there are churches still in Ismer. There's a, um, there's a church called Resurrection, um, interestingly enough. Uh, there's a church 
called, uh, named after St. John the Evangelist, the St. John who wrote the, this letter. Um, they have a pastor named James Buxton. I have no idea why such an English-sounding man is the pastor of a church in Turkey, but there's still, like, there's still churches there. Um, why are there still churches there? Well, I think there are still churches there. I mean, you can look them up on Yelp, but there are still churches in Smyrna because the church in Smyrna listened to Jesus and was not afraid to suffer. They didn't have to go looking for it, but they weren't afraid to suffer when it came to them. And um, the interesting thing about Smyrna is um, a few years after John records this letter to the church in Smyrna, there uh, was a pastor in Smyrna named Polycarp. And Polycarp is said by a church tradition to have been an, uh, a disciple of the Apostle John. And he became a pastor, became the Bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp lived to uh, 84 years old and still um, in 155 AD, about 60 years after John writes, the church in Smyrna is still being persecuted. And Polycarp is arrested and uh, told that if he will simply say, Caesar is Lord. If he will simply, he doesn't have to mean it, but just kind of give some nod of accommodation towards your culture, then we will set you free. And Polycarp, an eyewitness recorded that Polycarp's final words were these, for 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no evil. How could I then curse my king who saves me? And then instead of cursing those who murdered him, he, prays, uh, he prayed these words out loud, Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. And with those words, he was consumed by flames, not uttering vindictive curses against those who killed him. So Jesus' command is simply this, do not be afraid. If God was only transcendent, he might know, he might see, he might be powerful enough, but he would be aloof if God were only imminent. He is with us, but he can do nothing to help us. But you have a God who enters into your suffering with you. And yet he says it will not last forever, and those who endure to the end he will give the crown of life. And because we walk with him through our suffering, and as we walk with him through our suffering, he transforms what we suffer into our beauty, or into beauty in our lives. And so we return thanks to him, the one who is glorious. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for... Uh, these sobering words and I pray that uh, we would feel the full weight of what you're calling us to and that, that we would see uh, the, the beauty of it too Jesus many of us don't know that um, you're all we need until you're all that we have and so God we don't pray for suffering for ourselves, we don't want suffering for our friends, for our children. But we do pray that you would use um, well, the circumstances in our lives to show us just how beautiful you truly are. 
and that glimpse in your glory uh, we would endure, that we would not whine and complain about our own circumstances, but that we would um, understand the mission that you have given us to stand up and to show up for those who are hurting. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.